What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Did we all take the red pill back in 1999 and maybe wish we didn't? The Wachowskis only offered us the truth. Nothing more. This week on the show, we revisit The Matrix, which turns 20 this year. It's the second film in our 9 from 99 series, plus the top five slow motion scenes since The Matrix. The Matrix, it's got a few good ones. All that and more. Tell me, Mr. Larson, what good is a movie show if you are unable to speak? Ahead on film spotting. If only that worked. Welcome to Film Spotting. 20 years ago this March, The Matrix arrived in theaters without too much fanfare, just another sci fi mindbender starring the guy from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, of course. He had made the first speed movie as well, Josh, and directed by the makers of only one previous film, the kinky heist picture, Bound. Without much fanfare is right. I had to go digging to an actual print copy of my review of The Matrix from 99. Really? Before such things were online. And I actually talked about the fact that why is this movie not getting more of a push? Because it is such a mind bender. So they must have, Warner Brothers must have really just kind of slipped it out there. Well, it went on to become one of the most successful films of the year. It also changed movies and in no small way changed our way of thinking and talking about reality. Our 9 from 99 review of the Wachowski Sisters landmark film coming up in a bit. Also on the show, we will share our top five slow motion scenes since The Matrix helped us narrow down the list just a little bit. Our podcast listeners will also get their first taste of Film Spotting Madness 2019, best of the 2000s. Along with that, we'll announce the 13 contests that make up the play-in round of our 64-film March Madness-style contest. But first, let's jump down that rabbit hole. Whoa. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? Keanu Reeves there as Neo from The Matrix. What is The Matrix? The question that apparently... Not too many people were asking surrounding that film and its release back in 99. Everyone surely would be talking about it soon after a little bit of background on The Matrix and I suppose its stature. It did end up being the number five film at the box office this year, made over $463 million total, $171 million domestically, behind three movies that are part of our 9 from 99 series, The Phantom Menace, The Sixth Sense, and Toy Story 2, and one film that most certainly will not be Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. How about the Oscars? Josh, are you willing to make the case now upon this revisit for Keanu Reeves against actual Best Actor nominees Kevin Spacey, Denzel Washington, Richard Farnsworth, Russell Crowe, and Sean Penn? Spacey got it. Farnsworth should have. That's my answer to that question. (laughs) The Matrix was nominated for and won four Oscars, editing, visual effects, sound, and sound editing. Forget the Oscars. What about Film Spotting Madness? This year, it's the best of the 2000s. Last year, it was the best of the 90s. The Matrix was the 10th 
overall seed seems about right. Could possibly be a little bit higher. Do you remember at all how the Matrix did in the turning, Josh? I'm going to say Elite Eight. Indeed. Lost in the Elite Eight okay. to Goodfellas. So finished tied for fifth with Rushmore, Fight Club, and The Big Lebowski. Not bad. Then we've got the film spotting poll. As we were embarking on this 9 from 99 series, we asked listeners a few weeks back to name the best film of that year. We gave you six options, plus the ability to write in your own candidate. The Matrix won with 24% of the vote. And my guess is a lot of people approach the vote the same way Jeff in Olympia, Washington did. He wrote, when I think of the best film of a year, I think about which film A stood the test of time and B was the most significant or influential. This is a great pack of films, but I think the edge goes to The Matrix. Of course, there's a lot to parse in Jeff's concise criteria. Does standing the test of time mean that it's absolutely just as enjoyable to watch in 2019 as it was in 1999? Or that its style and what is real, how do you define real substance, is just as prescient and provocative now as it was then? Or is it both? And what of its influence? I'm not concerned so much with quantifying how much it has been imitated or qualifying how successful the imitators have been, but I am fascinated by the way author Chuck Klosterman framed the discussion of the movie in his appearance on our 600th episode where The Matrix made his list of the top five movies future historians will remember, and in his book, But What If We're Wrong, Thinking About the Present As If It Were the Past, where he wrote, when The Matrix debuted in 1999, it was a huge box office success. It was also well-received by critics, most of whom focus on one of two qualities. The technological, it mainstreamed the digital technique of three-dimensional bullet time, where the on-screen action would freeze while the camera continued to revolve around the participants, or the philosophical. It served as a trippy entry point for the notion that we already live in a simulated world, directly quoting philosopher Jean Baudrillard's 1981 reality-rejecting book, Simulacra and Simulation, and it's true, we do see that book on a nightstand or on a bookcase in Neo's apartment at one point. If you talk about The Matrix right now, Klosterman continues, these are still the two things you likely discuss. But what will still be interesting about this film once the technology becomes ancient and the philosophy becomes standard? Now, Josh, you know Chuck's fascinating answer, one I'm sure we'll touch on, which is tied to the fact that the film's co-writers and directors each completed their transitions from male to female since The Matrix's release. What's your answer? What's interesting about The Matrix, not in the distant future, which Chuck is most concerned with, but in the present, 20 years later, when the technology the Wachowski sisters so skillfully employed may not seem ancient, but standard, sure, and the philosophy, well, how many times per day does someone in your Twitter feed joke about the worst timeline we're currently stuck in? Well, Chuck's right. I mean, in a lot of ways, he was more right than he knew. The future is now. I think that element, when, when did we do that show with him? Was that 2017 or was it in 2018? I don't recall. I mean, it, was maybe, it was about a year ago, maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But basically, that's exactly the element that people would want to talk about now first, I think, are the, the gender issues here at play in the film and then, of course, in the background with the Wachowskis. I think it's also interesting, and we'll we'll get to this maybe, that the movie has a lot of revolutionary stuff on that end and also a very square element uh, that surprised me when I watched this again and forgot a little detail towards the finale. So maybe we can revisit that. Is this related to the love story? The kiss. Okay, yeah. yeah. The kiss. We'll talk was, about it. I was surprised by mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I'd um, forgotten it. But to go back and answer your question, you know, I, I think what I would say is that it's not the technology or the philosophy for me that makes this still so shockingly fresh, it's the way it interweaves the two. 
intricately where they feed off each other. They need each other. They reverberate with each other. In a lot of ways, we talked about last week, Lego Movie 2, and uh, one of my disappointments was the way it didn't do that very same thing that the first Lego Movie did is interweave idea and form so intricately. The Matrix does that. I mean, if whatever philosophy you want to talk about that strikes your fancy that's in this film, we, we could throw out Descartes too. Uh, I think, therefore, I am. Is that the angle you want to take on what's going on here? Uh, the Christianity that's in this movie, there's so much in here about you could discuss being slaves to sin. How, how does the actual narrative and the special effects capture that notion or the many references to Buddhism that's in this film as well. Whatever philosophy you pick to focus on, the technology the film uses to get bullet time, to get these ideas of uh, what is our identity, what is reality, it's right there in the form of the film. And that is still the brilliance of The Matrix. And I think that's what will be the brilliance of The Matrix no matter how many years out we get because you'll have movies with big ideas but the aesthetics aren't necessarily tied to it. They're, they're topping. You know, it's sprinkled on top in an action philosophy film. Um, or you'll get movies that have a lot of great action, but not a thought in their pretty little heads. And this is a movie that weaves those two things together consistently throughout. That was the thrill for me when I first saw it in 99. And that hasn't lost its freshness today. I don't think it will. Yeah, I'm with you completely. Idea and form. I think as long as we are creations who are not aware of have never met our creator and maybe 200 years from now people will walk around having met our creator who knows where we're going as a species but until that happens we're going to ask the very same questions about identity and what reality is and what our purpose is that are being posed here in this film that doesn't mean every movie that does that there are lots of films that ask some of those questions that doesn't mean they're all good but then you have a film like this one that in its form and in the way it integrates those questions does become something that takes on a sort of mythic status. And I think that's tied to some of the things you mentioned, the universal nature of this story, the references, even if they're not explicit to things like Descartes and some of those philosophical questions, Christianity, certainly Buddhism, certainly the whole notion of Neo being the one that element of storytelling goes back as far as storytelling yeah, goes. For right. Sure. And I couldn't help but notice it this time, never noticed it before. Some of the homages I felt, whether they're deliberate or not, to films that we also think of as sort of in this discussion of movies that have entered the public consciousness and we're still reckoning with them. Something like Star Wars. There's a riff in this movie where Neo at one point says, it's not possible. I don't believe it. That seems like he's actually quoting the line from... Star Wars, when Mark Hamill's Luke has to confront who his father really is. Even the scene where they're hiding out. Remember where they're hiding out? They shut down the ship to avoid the squiddies yeah. and they have mm -hmm. to be quiet. Oh, that's that's a direct right reference to exactly to a moment like that. I think the one with Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon where they shut it down in a cave. That's not really a cave. If I'm wrong about that, someone will call me out. But I know it's there. There's a scene with Morpheus right after he's confronted all of this for the first time. I think it's when he comes out of it and throws up. And then the next time we see him, he's laying in bed and he wakes up and Morpheus is there. And Lawrence Fishburne with his bald head and the way he's silhouetted in the light is just like Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, delivering wisdom to Martin Sheen. Again, whether it's deliberate or not, you've got the elements of Judas in Cypher's betrayal that are undeniable. And then you mentioned it, the kiss, which we can talk about whether we think it works or not, yeah. whether it's a weakness of the film or not. It makes this whole film 
a fairy tale all of a sudden where a princess comes along and kisses the frog and he turns into a prince. He lives because of her belief in him, her love for him. He is able to transcend his circumstances and save the day. Or, or it's like Sleeping Beauty, right? Where the, exactly. Where the prince is coming. And there's the reversal, right? So I can see that they're, they're already mixing with gender roles by having Carrie Ann Moss deliver the kiss to the male character. Sure. Um, and I think uh, someone like, uh, you know, great Chicago critic, friend of the show, Angelica J. Bastien, would talk about Keanu Reeves' position as an action star and being used in that way, being put in what is the quote-unquote feminine role of being saved by the kiss. So I get that there is a twist going on there. Mm-hmm. But this idea, and it's tied to what you brought up, the the mythology of being the one, uh, this idea still that love suddenly coming out of nowhere between them. You felt like I it was out of nowhere? It's a reference it's, multiple times. Uh, maybe it's just that I never bought it for a second okay. between the two. I mean, that's maybe why I she's should, spying on him at the beginning. Maybe I should rephrase it that way. But suddenly you're going to this very traditional climax in a lot of ways for me. Mm-hmm. And not that that undercuts the film, but now that I'm looking at through the lens of the Wachowskis transitioning and thinking that this is going to be really radical in ways that we didn't necessarily recognize in 1999, and it has it has still a little bit of squareness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is related to this notion of Neo being the one, and one question I asked myself throughout is, did he need to be the one for this story to be so great, or is that a bit of mythology, uh, a, a bit of philosophy in some ways that could have been jettisoned, and would this have been a more interesting story hmm. if he was just another guy? I know there's some deception and misdirection that that the plot would have to lose then because we think he's the one, and then yeah. we think he's not, and then we find out, no, he really is. Um, but there's something a little, I keep going back to the word square, or traditional in a sense of sure. having to have it be this Harry Potter type, which I know Harry Potter was, you know, not quite Harry Potter yet, but um, this idea, as you said yourself, has gone back to millennia. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it would have been a more interesting movie if he was just another guy who's hacking the system. And that that seems like almost it would have been a bit more revolutionary in terms Hmm. of uh, what a sci-fi hero is. Yeah, I would really have to give that a lot more thought to have something interesting to say for me. It's all tied up in the larger questions the movie poses about belief, and I can't extricate it from the plot because it's so crucial to it. And it really is about these choices that characters make, and they make a lot of choices because of their belief or lack of belief in what they're being told and what they're seeing. And so without that element, without all those different people, without all those different people, though, having a relationship to the truth and belief via Neo, then I... That seems to break down for me. But that's it. You just answered it for me, why it was kind of nagging at me. Because so much of this movie is about rejecting things we don't know for sure, right? It's, It's rejecting the illusions we've been sold. And so we realize this is the real world in this crappy mm-hmm. ship going through these giant sewers and AI is in control. But then the movie at the same time wants to say, well, just believe in this myth. Believe in what the Oracle says. Uh, the Oracle is less believable to me than the Matrix. Uh, you know, at least the Matrix is made of zeros and ones that I can put my faith hmm. in. And so it's a movie that's essentially uh, deflating Neo's faith in the Matrix, then asks all of us to say, well, just put your faith in this this myth we've, you know, all of our stories are made of that he's the one. We don't really need to know well, why he's the one or how he's the one. Sure. Where do his powers come from? Uh, suddenly we're, we're thrown back in the land of just um, 
just believe, which is what the movie has been deflating too. Right. So, but I think it nagged at me a little. Yeah, bit. I get you. But it all ties to this notion that he believes he is striving for something more and then he's told that he is and so the question becomes about whether or not he'll ever truly accept that notion so i guess it worked for me and the kiss i'm not sure i see as maybe one of the better aspects of the film but the relationship was never an issue to me because i think what is suggested at one point is that this is something that the oracle told her and then just like the oracle has a great line at one point when he knocks over the vase and he says you know what we'll really cook your noodle yeah, or whatever it is, is when you think about whether or not it's because I said it, you then did it and not vice versa. With Trinity, it's a case where she was told, I believe, by the Oracle that she's going to fall in love with the one. She's going to meet the one and fall in love with him. So then I do wonder whether or not does that come true because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. or because it's just a prophecy. It seemed like that was embedded enough into the plot that it always made sense. The Klosterman question, though, really is fascinating. And all I'll really add to it is that whole idea that he poses, he writes about in the book and talked about on our show. I will not rehash it all here. But in summary, he says, in some protracted reality, film historians will reinvestigate an extremely commercial action movie made by people who, unbeknownst to the audience, would eventually transition from male to female. Suddenly, the symbolic meaning of a universe with two worlds, one false and constructed, the other genuine and hidden, takes on an entirely new meaning. So with that in mind, of course, I knew how that would be something I would be thinking about as I watched The Matrix. But where it really just hit you was in a couple of lines and moments in particular, the one, for example, where Neo is told, I believe it is by Neo in this scene, it seems that you've been living two lives. And that bit finishes with him saying, one of these lives has a future and one of them does not. Take out everything in between, the specifics of his life as Thomas Anderson, program writer, respectable software company, all that stuff, and think about it through that prism of these filmmakers. Potentially then, obviously, thinking about these two lives and wrestling with that idea of one of them having a future and the one that they're stuck in, not. And then that line, you've always known, the feeling always there. I imagine that's the case for lots of people who make that decision ultimately to transition. So it really did stand out here. I wonder if it did with you. You can even see it in the casting of Reeves, I think, because yes, he was an action star thanks to Speed, as you mentioned at the top. But as Angelica's written about, you know, he's not the prototypical macho action star and perhaps not the first choice or the first expected choice for a role like this. But by putting him in, who has always had androgynous qualities to him and and been able to move along that scale and play that scale however he wants, however he feels is appropriate for the role, um, that just makes perfect sense. Now you would say, of course they would cast Keanu Reeves, having maybe just enough action cred with speed, but also these other qualities that might have been what they were looking for. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And I think we just have to talk about how much fun this movie ultimately is. I mean, we've said that in a few different ways, but the slow motion that we're going to talk about in detail when we get into our top five, and I know we are going to talk a lot about how it's important to be stylish for it to serve the overall aesthetic in some way, but it probably helps if it's functional, if it actually adds something to the film and what we are getting from it. And that's obviously the case here, I think, as it directly ties to this bizarre kind of in-between of reality that these characters inhabit, where you've got the Matrix, which is one kind of reality, you have the other kind of reality, and they can kind of throw out the rules and 
everything about time and space kind of breaks down for them. It makes sense then that we would get that kind of slow motion. There is a fair amount of slow motion here, I noticed, beyond just the bullet time stuff that everyone talks about. I think it's all very effective. And how about just some of the storytelling touches that help create this world? That big showdown at the end. A showdown, again, you could argue this is another element of myth being applied. It's like an old time western except it's in a subway station and it's between (laughs) these two people who aren't people really at all but then we get the newspaper that blows through just like a tumbleweed (laughs) that's such a great visual joke and there are sure maybe one or two lines of dialogue in the script that were a little bit clunky but overall we're talking about how efficient and tidy and effective this movie is it's because the structure is incredibly sound and i think overall all the weighty things they're wrestling with are really done in an economical and sophisticated way and there also are some just really nice moments and lines like the one where trinity meets neo and neo knows her by reputation and name and says i thought you were a guy and she says most guys think that Mm -hmm. great and then the woe even that Keanu gives us is like, you know, this movie needed that. The movie needed Ted Theodore Logan to deliver yeah. that line. But now he's all grown up. Now it's it's combining that Ted Logan kind of curiosity and wonder and goofiness with Johnny Utah's earnestness from Point Break and the kind of determination and doggedness of Jack Traven from Speed and just perfectly combining it into this entity that is Mr. Anderson and Neo. My last line I'm going to give you that I just love, and I love the delight with which the actress delivers it, the Oracle. I love everything about the Oracle sequence <laughs> and really the way it's, it's conceived. We got to get when, her name. Yeah, when she says to him, and this goes back to this idea of Neo and Trinity being in love with each other or Trinity's feelings for Neo, she says something about that. She says something about how Trinity has a thing for him. And he says, what? He has no idea. She says, not too bright, though. <laughs> so there's meta commentary going there on is. there, obviously. Um, Gloria Foster. And the, the Kung Oracle. Fu. And Sorry, Gloria Foster. We have to talk about the Kung Fu. How great we'll is to, everything about the Kung Fu sequence? We'll get to the Kung Fu. Uh, so Gloria Foster, fantastic, even though, like I said, I, I'm not so sure about the whole the one mythology in here this time around. But she's so great in that scene. Woe is maybe all you need to know about Keanu Reeves as a screen presence and performer. And I don't mean that to sound reductive. No. For all the things you were describing, they're all encapsulated yeah. in that one syllable. How many syllable. characters could do that? Could deliver that. And make it work. Yes. The way the movie needs it to. How many actors, I should say. So so he is he's really fun here as well. Other elements of fun. It's the fact that this movie proceeds as a series of revelations mm-hmm. right from the beginning. And we think, oh, wow, this is this is all we need to know. This is what everything's about. And then, no, there's more. And it, re- it reveals things, again, through action. So the training sequences are doing that. And the Kung Fu here is where we should mention that Yuan Wu-Ping is the stunt director made the very next year. He was working on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean, how about a, a back-to-back piece of work mm-hmm. in terms of stunt design and choreography Amazing. it's just incredible stuff and and again it's it's married with the technology right. so these fight scenes would hold up you'll, you'll notice that the way they're staged and filmed where we see a lot of the action it's not too tight um they would exist and work really well on their own mm-hmm. but then you add the camera effects which bring a whole nother element to it and you get the matrix yeah we have to believe that they can perform these tricks. It's as simple as that. It's crucial to the authenticity of this world, which is so crucial to our overall experience with this film. I think that world building is 
so important, obviously. And I think I've probably referenced this one or two times on the show in the past whenever the matrix has come up. But this only works, I think, Josh, if as we're watching that revelation from Morpheus to Neo about what the world truly is and that it's all a construct, if there's some little part in the back of our brain that says, wow, this could be right. What if? What if? You know, of course. there is enough about my everyday life that seems just out of place. That's why the, weird. That's why the deja vu bit is That's perfect. what I was getting at. So that's the deja vu bit is the most brilliant bit in the I movie. I think it's because that's, so crucial. Yeah, that is that moment where we all go, yeah, that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. What else could deja vu be? <laughs> we all know what deja vu is. None of us can articulate it. And somehow them attaching it to this world, we go, yeah, we, mm-hmm. we've seen this before because it's it's a glitch of some kind. That makes total sense. And even there's another nice touch with what Mouse, I think, says about chicken. You know how we all universally talk about, well, chicken, everything tastes yeah, like right. chicken. Well, maybe it does because the Matrix just didn't know how to account for all of those different flavors. They got it wrong. That stuff does matter in this world. Well, both the chicken bit and the deja vu bit are touching on deep philosophical questions, but so lightly and quickly, and they move on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also a key to the matrix. So those elements speak to its resonance. We've touched a little bit on its prescience. But one thing that I couldn't have known in 1999, obviously, but I recognize now is it wasn't so much to me that it was predicting the world of virtual reality as social media. I mean, when I think about, oh my goodness, what is the matrix today? Mm -hmm. It's being stuck on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, you think about it's this alternate reality uh, that acts as a blinder mm. in many ways. It acts, it's a different version of yourself. It's a different version of yourself, acts as a pacifier mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, and acts as a slave master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like yeah. I, when I'm looking at those those green lines on the screen watching The Matrix in 2019, yeah, I'm thinking social media more than virtual reality. No, I think you are on to something there. And I do want to mention one other bit of craft that I appreciated. One scene I liked quite a bit this time, and it's that whole sequence is how it ends, where Neo is being chased down by the agents, and he's talking to Morpheus on the phone. And he goes, oh, the scaffold. He goes out onto the scaffolding, and then we see him go... Nope, I'm going back in. And he goes back in, and the very next cut is him in an interrogation room with the agents. I think we they don't... show him, yeah, well, they show him getting taken out of the building, right? Okay. Which is the deflation. Yes, it is the deflation, but yeah. the next thing you know, he's in there. And that's that's what I'm referring to, is that we don't get that scene where he goes, I can't do it, or maybe I'll try again, or he says anything else at all. He doesn't, he doesn't reckon with it. Mm-hmm. The reckoning is in the action of simply going back in. And the next thing you know, he's being taken out. And that's, that's a bit of just really nice kind of economical storytelling. Yes, for sure. It's economical, and uh, it shows us that this isn't going to be the kind of action movie you think you're going to get with right. him clinging to the scaffolding. Yes. We're going to show you something a whole lot cooler. So let me let me throw in, I don't want to end on a down note. But well, one, I have a question for you too. Okay, I've okay. got one quibble that is something that in... 2019, I don't think plays as well. And that's essentially the gun porn going on in this film. Um, I mean, it's something I feel like I should have recognized in 99, but I think I've either just become more aware, as hopefully most Americans have, of gun violence generally, but also in this country. And also, I think I've just become deadened by it after watching 20 more years. This is years, really creative gun porn. 20 more years. <laughs> of movies, of gun porn, Mm -hmm. and that sequence of them going to rescue Morpheus. Mm -hmm. And what's the quote? It's something like, lots of guns. Yeah, guns. Need uh, guns. It just shows you, hopefully, you know, how we've moved 
and as as a culture, I don't think that scene would be played in most films. That's now. a relic. That's a relic. That of is a relic. It is. I agree. In 2019, almost every part of this film would be the same, but that wouldn't be. I would hope not. I don't think it would be. Yeah. And also, we wouldn't get the only dated special effect in the entire film. And I think it's that Agent Smith death scene. That's the only effect where it feels like it's almost out of early 80s Cronenberg mm. body horror stuff I thought, that, that felt really dated. Yeah, I thought uh, for other reasons about Cronenberg a lot <laughs> during this movie. Yeah, for Okay, sure. so here's my question for you, perhaps a quibble, and it ties back to what you were saying about the gun porn. I'm not so bothered by all the gunplay in general. I am perhaps bothered by how it connects back to a couple questions I want to pose to you here. Would you agree? Yes or no? The movie places a premium on human life. Freeing people from the machines is what it's all about. Making sure Zion continues to exist. Keeping the human race alive is kind of what this whole movie is about. Yes, survival. Okay. Does anyone who is plugged into the Matrix die if they die in the Matrix? Die for real. We see that happen, right? Exactly. Regardless of where you're plugged into the Matrix, if you die while plugged in, you will die in quote-unquote reality. So then... Is it a problem that the movie, maybe not so gleefully, but so easily, kills any number of non-agents without a moment of hesitation? Every single one of those police officers, everyone on the street who's just perhaps oh, collateral that's, that's damage. that's interesting. Josh, um, they're all just people like Trinity and Morpheus Well, and I Neo. guess my question is, are they or are they projections from the Matrix? Because Mouse, the woman in red... As far as I understand, is that's entirely a program. A di- right. My my thinking was all the other people were programs, no matter who they saw. So basically, everyone's in their own matrix. They're not interacting with other plugged mm. in people. And I think mm. there's I think there's a line somewhere okay. that speaks to that because I that might be the answer. When that whole shootout where all those guards are being massacred, I remember thinking this is really rough. I know at some point earlier the movie had made a point to clarify that they're not killing people. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Reason. But But your argument is they could be killing people in pods. Exactly. What I'm saying is, I think what you're referencing is the moment where Morpheus explains that in the Matrix, in the world that Neo thought was the real world, that he starts the film in, Anyone is a potential vehicle for an agent, so yes. they are a threat. Yeah. But them being a threat is different than them being human or not. And I, so the key question, the really key question is what you post. Right. And I'd have to go back or read more about it, which is, is the world that Mr. Anderson inhabits yes. solely his world, a construct in his mind, right. and no one else is real at all? Or is every human who is plugged into those pods— Yes. In the same 1999, I see the movie as saying it's the same 1999. I feel like that's the way Morpheus sets that up. And if that's the case, then every person they kill 
dies in their pod right. and is a human life that's being taken. So if you're being charitable, you could say the movie presents an interesting utilitarian dilemma without explicitly posing the question. It says, saving Morpheus, saving Zion, saving all of humanity is worth a few broken eggs, a few people who die along the way. If you're being uncharitable, then you would say the Wachowskis just really hope nobody asks these questions. Or I, I still think I read it the other way. Okay, where they're yeah, all, you did. They're all programmed. I feel like there's an and, answer, and maybe uh, someone knows it. Yeah, I th- and I think the answer might be in that line. It might be a Morpheus line, but there's something that keyed me off where it wasn't so much the character speaking as I felt the filmmakers explicitly saying, hey, a lot of people are going to die okay. in the rest of this movie. Just so you know, they're not really people. And so that way, the setup is that everyone in a pod gets the same program downloaded to their brain, but it's just a program. Yeah, see, I read that as that threat dialogue, and I do think that there's a distinction there. So I look forward to being enlightened by our listeners. That is The Matrix, which is currently available to rent or stream on most platforms, or you can just take that red pill and experience The Matrix for yourself. If you've seen the movie... We're assuming most of you have, and you agree or disagree with our thoughts. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Coming up next, our top five slow motion scenes since The Matrix, and insert evil cackle here, the beginning of Film Spotting Madness. Stay with us. Wes Bentley and his dancing bag in 1999's American Beauty, the best film of 1999, according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 99. It took home the Best Picture Oscar in March 2000. And Josh, you and I will reckon with American Beauty a little later in the year. It's another one of the films we are going to revisit as part of our 9 from 99 series. Two films in, we've discussed The Sixth Sense and, of course, on this show, The Matrix. But what is really the best film of the great movie year 99. We asked listeners for a definitive answer, and I think we mostly got one. The options we gave you were Being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, Fight Club, The Matrix, Magnolia, Toy Story 2, and other you could write in your own. I already spoiled these results in the opening segment. We know The Matrix won with 24% of the vote. How did all the other films do? Well, in last place, Toy Story 2, only 6% of the vote. Then Eyes Wide Shut got 11% of the vote. The other category was, I think, more popular than usual in our polls. It received 12% of the vote. Fight Club is next, 14%. Being John Malkovich got 16%. Magnolia received 17% of the vote to take second place behind The Matrix. So 24 to 17% for 
Magnolia, a little bit of a gap there, enough good titles there that this poll was pretty close. The top write-in vote-getters were The Talented Mr. Ripley, The Insider, and American Beauty. So apparently there are people who appreciate this film still. I think we're going to anger a lot of listeners when we get to that one. We'll see. We have already said this, but you were anti-American Beauty in 99? Strongly. I was pro-American Beauty in 99, though unlike you, I think, in 99, I wasn't writing any film criticism. I was just... The average film goer, Josh, just going to movies mindlessly, not remember, thinking remember about any of this old stuff. Days? I do. Can I go back? Can I go <laughs> back, please? But no, seriously, I remember 1999 being a great year for film, even though I wasn't writing about movies then. And yeah, I thought American Beauty was great. Now, I've seen scenes, not the whole thing, but I've seen scenes from American Beauty since then and thought it was terrible. <laughs> and I wondered what I was thinking in 1999. So... This should be fun to revisit it. We got to give it a shot, right? We do. I, I haven't seen it since, so I definitely have room for reconsideration. I will try my best to do that. Back to the poll feedback. Evan Wilcox says, the thing about Fight Club is that it's the sweetest, least bro-y movie David Fincher has ever made. Two generations of bros and their detractors have been having the wrong argument. I mean, it ends with a confession. You met me at a very strange time in my life that the whole story was a wrong turn, a screwed up detour on the way to growing up. Marla is the real truth, and the rest is a subliminal dick pic. Wow. Well said, Evan. (laughs) We're bookmarking this comment for that 9 from 99 review later in the year. We also heard from Mike Heiler. No shortage of excellent movies on this list. However, Eyes Wide Shut stands above the rest. It is complex and challenging and has Kubrick's signature immaculate cinematic aesthetic. As with the majority of Kubrick's other work, Eyes takes us to places we may not be completely comfortable going, affects us in ways that we've never experienced before, and stays with us long afterwards. There's been nothing else like it, neither before nor since. I am excited to revisit Eyes Wide Shut as well. Jim Polini from Bethpage, New York. Many great movies have examined the friction that occurs when a broadcast news department tries to exist independently within a profit-minded corporate structure, network, the post, etc., but few have executed it as well as Michael Mann's The Insider. It's Mann's most complex film, and the best film of his career, quite a thing for the guy who made Heat. Got a comment about a write-in vote here from David Hoffman. I'm going to throw in a left-field vote for the talented Mr. Ripley. It manages to be an unbelievably beautiful period travel picture and a starkly disturbing thriller at the same time. Plus, I think it's still... Matt Damon's best ever performance. Interesting. Jeff Webb writes, bringing out the dead, not even on this list. Did you write this, Josh? I love Jeff it, Jeff. Webb. I love it, Jeff. You're known to plume. Scorsese's second best of the 90s and maybe his best and certainly his most underrated of the last 25 years. It gets my pick for sure. Just going off memory, I think I named it number two film of the year, bringing out the dead. Okay. Love it. We heard from Tony as well, who wrote in all caps with, let me see here, four exclamation points, Almodovar. Nothing possesses the beauty, touches you more deeply, makes you laugh and cry like Almodovar's crazy, amazing tale all about my mother. Nothing. I do love that movie, Tony. Patrick Banks, if you would have asked me in January 2000 what I thought was the best film of 99, I would have replied, American Beauty, without hesitation. If you asked me what I thought would prove to be the most influential, I would have answered The Matrix. But today... I would answer South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut, to both questions. Unwittingly, I believe this movie, as much as any other, helped to usher in the current renaissance of the musical genre we are enjoying today. I am loving the poll comments this week. South Park, also on my top 10 list for 99. Wow. 
I did enjoy that movie, Smart Listeners. One more comment here from Brett Merriman. Three-way tie between Election, The Matrix, and Talented Mr. Ripley. My latest fanfic, Tracy Flick, has to bring Dickie Greenleaf back from Europe. Tom Ripley has to win a school election, only to realize it's a glitch in The Matrix. Layers, man. Brett Merriman, you're a writer. Write it already. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who voted and shared that great feedback. We don't have a new poll this week because we have gone... Into the Mouth of Madness. Film Spotting Madness, best of the 2000 play-in polls are open. You can find them at filmspotting.net slash madness. We will walk through those play-in contests in just a bit. First, we have a few notes. I'm excited about our top five. Next week on the show, we are going to discuss the top five movies about suburbia. I can't believe in 700-plus episodes we have never talked about movies and their depictions of the suburbs. But we have a great excuse to do it, and that's because Jessica Harper, who you probably all know from Suspiria fame, she's in the new one as well briefly, but she was the star of Suspiria 77, that Argento classic. She has a podcast out, the actress does, called Winnetka, a memoir. I'm halfway through this 10-part series so far. It is about her and her five siblings growing up in Eisenhower's post-war America in Winnetka, one of the northern suburbs of Chicago. Lots of family secrets. A lot of the stuff that we see depicted in movies that are about that surface idyllic life in the burbs and underneath it's hiding a lot of darkness. There's a fair amount of darkness in Ms. Harper's telling of her childhood and I encourage people to check out the podcast and she's going to join us we'll talk a little bit about Winnetka and then she's going to do the top five with us just subscribe today so I'll be diving into that podcast this week also on that show we're going to begin I can't believe this is actually happening but we are going to begin our John Cassavetes marathon or the next week we say April Fool's Day yeah I guess you fell for it I guess I shouldn't sound so we got confident you. the way this has gone over many many years no we're going to start with Cassavetes second film Faces from 1968 we'll follow that up with reviews of A Woman Under the Influence The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and Opening Night I don't know we'll see if we throw another one in there but that is the plan for now all of these titles including Faces are available to rent on most platforms Or I'll make the local library plug. I'm getting mine through Interlibrary Loan. There you go. A few other notes here. Bing Liu's 2018 Golden Brick winner and Oscar nominee, deservedly so for Best Documentary, Minding the Gap, will be airing on PBS next week. So I'm just thinking here, Josh, about the people who have heard us talk about this film so much, Glowing Review, Golden Brick win, and then, of course, one of my scenes of the year, most moving moment, I think, came from Minding the Gap. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet because you aren't a Hulu subscriber or it hasn't played in a theater near you, it's going to be part of PBS's POV series Monday, February 18th. So hopefully you're all hearing this early as we post it and you have a chance to check that out. That's 9 p.m. Eastern time, Monday, February 18th check your local listings. I've always wanted to say that. We also want to alert Chicago listeners to the fourth annual Chicago Feminist Film Festival. That's going to be Wednesday, February 27 through March 1 at Columbia College's Film Row Cinema. On Thursday the 28th at 6.30 p.m., they're going to be screening Crystal Swan. That's the official Belarusian Oscar submission. It's set in post-Soviet Belarus about an aspiring DJ who tries to get a visa to travel to the United States. And bureaucracy intervenes. Crystal Swan just had its U.S. premiere at this year's Sundance. If you want to find out more about the festival in general, the Chicago Feminist Film Festival, you can do that at chicagofeministfilmfestival.com. Also, our local listeners, if you want to see movies free, 
and you want to see them in advance of their release, we often have Admit 2 passes to give away. And right now, we are giving away passes to see the latest from director Neil Jordan, Greta. The screening is Monday, February 25th. It stars the great Isabel Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz. It's about a young woman who befriends a lonely widow who's harboring a dark and deadly agenda towards her. So if that sounds intriguing, again, want to see it for free in advance, you can do that Monday, February 25th, and you can enter to win those passes at filmspotting.net slash events. And we do often here promote our Film Spotting newsletter. It comes out every week on Mondays. You get behind-the-scene conversations, late-breaking schedule changes, and random musings, mostly from our esteemed, very bright producer, Sam Van Hallgren. And we got a bit of praise, or I should say Sam deservedly got a bit of praise this week via Twitter. It came to us via at Hushway. He said, unsolicited, Josh, it is rare that I actually read an entire email newsletter. However, the film spotting newsletter is one of the exceptions. It's a perfect blend of behind the scenes, tidbits, articles, and other references from past shows and genuinely funny content. Very kind of you, Hushway. I know Sam puts a lot of work into that. So he appreciates that, I'm sure. And one of the reasons I wanted to highlight it, you can subscribe at filmspotting.net slash episodes. But I wanted to mention it specifically this week because some of you may be thinking, I could have swore I heard these guys last week on the show say multiple times that they were going to do a Soderbergh-related top five this week and talk about his new film, which is on Netflix, High Flying Bird. Obviously, we called an audible. Josh, did you ever make time? For yeah. High Flying Bird? Yeah, it's fascinating. So you're pro High Flying Bird? Um, well, Or so you're just fascinated by it? Big NBA fan, so I ate all that stuff up. I yeah. mean, the player empowerment questions it was asking. In a ways, it's a little behind the times uh, because some of this empowerment stuff has been going on really since LeBron James left Cleveland the first time. Um, it puts it in a different framework, I think, that's interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about the iPhone. Okay. The NBA well, stuff I love, yeah. the iPhone stuff. Producer Sam is there with you. I don't know. And you can you can hear me and Sam, anyway, have a bit of a dialogue about the iPhone stuff, as you said, in Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, because I didn't have a problem with it, and we conversed about it in our Slack channel, as we often do, and then sometimes that finds its way into public postings like the newsletter. This isn't a new thing for our newsletter, but things that you maybe never intended to be read by anyone but Sam, in my case, then end up for everyone who is subscribed to the Film Spotting newsletter to read. Obviously, I'm okay with it because I didn't say anything tremendously stupid, just normally stupid. And we did get into that iPhone aspect a little bit and the script in general, Terrell Alvin McCraney. So if you are curious for Film Spotting's thoughts about High Flying Bird and you haven't read a review from Josh yet and you didn't hear it on the show, you can get it in the newsletter. And the archive of newsletters is available on that episodes page, filmspotting.net slash episodes. Yeah, I'll probably have a review on my own site pretty soon here, probably by the time the show comes out. But kind of give me give me a little something. Let me give you the chance to sound a little bit normally stupid. What does the <laughs> iPhone add? Just just quickly. What well, does it add for you? Really quickly? Yeah. Intimacy. I like okay. the intimacy. I believe, and I think we could point out a lot of individual shots and sequences, Soderbergh is able to put the camera in places and move in places that I don't think he would otherwise be able to or be inclined to. Oh, and okay. I feel that. I really felt that in a lot of those scenes. That's for sure. I guess the question I'm wrestling with is, did he really need to put it in that many places in a single scene? <laughs> there is a lot of cutting between angles, yeah. especially in the Quite. opening. Quite a lot. I will give you that. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy, and this is what's happening in your world tonight. 
A La Jolla man clings to life at a university hospital after being viciously attacked by a pack of wild dogs in an abandoned pool. Hey, everybody! Shut the hell up! Ron Burgundy's on! Thank you, Ron Burgundy. This just in, it's Josh's favorite time of the year. You know, Sam and I joke about this a lot, that you don't like film spotting madness, but I know you like, or I... I want to cling to the notion that you like film spotting madness. You just prefer to be left out of all the sausage making. Oh, yeah. And that's what we have done. I love to play. You love the result. You love the bracket. I just don't want to be up to 3 a.m. spitting movies against each other. We were never up to 3 a.m., but Josh— What was the the latest? The way around— No, no, what was the latest? No, the way around that is you just talk about it all day long. Yeah, well, I (laughs) know that. You go basically from 10 10 in the morning to about— Eight at night? I thought everyone assumed that is a given. Every day? I'm for just saying in six a, weeks. In addition to that, you're no. still talking till three AM. We probably went to midnight a few nights. Okay. There we you did. Go. And then resumed at seven AM. You know the that's next morning. way past my bedtime. That's true. That's true. You would never be able to make it through the selection committee process. <laughs> we are going to get into all of the madness here as the play in round is live. What's a play in round? Well, if you are familiar with the NCAA's March Madness, there are some teams that are on just the outside looking in, and they get a chance to play their way in. If they win a game, then, well, they're usually the last seed, and they have to go up against a juggernaut. Ours doesn't exactly work like that, though in some cases it does. It's really just a matter of Sam and I feeling like we just can't leave some of these titles out. It doesn't matter that the bracket has to get down to 64. We're going to start it out with more than that. And then, Josh, there's another component, which is we sometimes are able to find these nice little connections between the films for these play-ins. And yes. that at least justifies it for us. And this is why the meetings go four hours longer. You're also yes. covering your butts. Because, totally. Yeah. Someone could this say, is a way, how did this not make it in? Say, it made it in. Well, it made into one of the 38 play-in rounds. Shut up, Josh. <laughs> You're not into the sausage making. So no, that's no right. secrets. Let's move, actually, no actually secrets. now that you bring that up, let's move on. Yeah, <laughs> what let's are do the it. play-in matches? Okay, so here are the play-ins. We have 13 of them, and you can vote now filmspotting.net slash madness. You're going to determine whether or not these films make it into the tournament. And I'm just saying, this is different than the NCAA. They're not going to necessarily all go up against Juggernaut. Some of these movies have a chance to go far in this tournament. I really do believe that. So is it going to be in the Lord of the Rings play-in, the Fellowship of the Ring versus the Return of the King? We had initially thought we would include the two towers and make it a three-way play-in. It was my suggestion to Sam that really the two towers would just siphon a few votes away from one of those two. It'd be a better sort of death match with one and three. My sense is, Josh, you tell me if I'm wrong, those are the two people generally holding the highest regard. I think that's probably right. Even I, though I think I said two was my favorite. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I uh, I would have gone with that way of thinking if I were a voter. And I am a voter. How am I doing this? I actually, usually I love to do this on the fly, like real time. Mm-hmm. I don't see the matchups until we're recording, but I have to confess I did look at these. Well, you had to. Because we were doing a little- we have our own tournament we have our own tournament where we fill out our prediction brackets somebody loses every year it's you we'll see what (laughs) yeah i've lost every year adam sandler is only making films for you josh at this point pretty much yeah so yeah normally i don't look until we're recording i'll try to recreate that here and then going forward in the next rounds i'll do okay i can't wait to watch you act through. okay i'm gonna act so so who am i picking So josh fellowship of the ring return of the king what do you go with fellowship yeah okay it's got more of those iconic sequences i remember when i think about that series okay only because only because we did recently look at the entire series and i say recently what was it maybe a year ago where we talked about all three films i believe i said on the air so of course i am stuck with it that my order was two, three, one 
like all of them, but 231, which would mean that return gets the edge over fellowship. Okay. Okay. That brings us to the Kill Bill plan. Is it volume one or volume two? Very different films. I wrote volume one because it came first. Yeah. I And that's not meant to be a diss on these films. I haven't revisited them since they first came out. So. No, that's true with almost all of these films, unfortunately. I do want to point out that the aforementioned Brett Merriman wrote to me and said, you know, you're letting Harvey Weinstein win here, and no one wants to do that, especially these days. But he's the one who decided to split these films up. I didn't even really know this. I'm sure I'd heard it at some point, but did the research. Brett's absolutely right that this was all a ploy by Miramax to make more money, to not have a four-hour film out there. Quentin Tarantino conceived them as one film, wrote them, shot them as one film, intended to release it as one film, and that just didn't happen that way. We consumed them as two films. So you could make the case that it should just be Kill Bill, and there should be no play-in at all. I posted on Twitter just to see what people would say. Got a fair number of votes, and most people, maybe they're not aware of the history, but 63% said Nah, they're two films. We saw them separately. They're two films. I think Brett Merriman can have my seat on the selection committee. He'll take it. He oh, will definitely take it. So you're going volume one. Haven't revisited these films myself. I'm differing from you once again. I'm going volume two. The general consensus on these are that volume one is the more action-driven and more stunt sequences, if you will, and volume two is all the character stuff. And you know what? That's why I like volume two a little bit better. So that's my pick. The Spielberg play-in, I know where you're going here, Minority Report versus AI. Well, you know, this is relatively easy because AI is possibly the best film of the 2000s. Wow. Um, possibly Spielberg's best film. It's so not even going to make think, it into the bracket, Josh. I, well, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> but that's where my vote's going. It's going to hurt you when that plays out. And it might play out. The precogs have told me that Minority Report's going to win. And I'm voting for Minority Report because... AI is in the top five films in this bracket that I probably don't appreciate enough and need to see again. Correct. Okay. The ensemble crime comedy play in Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh versus Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. I went Ocean's Eleven. I know Hot Fuzz is probably the cooler pick to make. It's not one of my favorite Edgar Wright films. I'm with you. We're nice. in agreement, okay. finally, and Ocean's Eleven is my pick. I think Hot Fuzz is fine. Don't think it's as good as his other films, and I'm good with Soderbergh getting some love here. Ocean's Eleven, hopefully, will go in. The superhero play-in. This one, I think, is really, really interesting because it actually ties back to this crime comedy one. One of the things Sam and I really wrestled with as we were doing the seating was thinking about the generations who are represented in our audience. Is it a little bit younger? Is it going to skew more towards Edgar Wright and something like Ocean's Eleven is going to be overlooked? Or is it going to be more people like us, Josh, who are going to remember maybe a little bit more fondly something like Ocean's Eleven? That goes for this play-in, the superhero play-in. Are you going old-school Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2 or new school, the movie that launched, for better or worse, the MCU, Iron Man? So I love Iron Man. It's one of my favorite MCU I'm a fan films. too. Yeah. And that was my instinct, but I will give a Next Picture Show plug here. It's after listening to their discussion of Spider-Man 2, I think it was in connection with Into the Spider-Verse, that they really sold me on the movie. And I think I probably, I liked it, but I think I probably underestimated it at the time. So gave it my vote. Okay. We're agreeing there as well. Spider-Man 2 for me. The comedy play-in. Is it Anchorman? Or the 40-year-old virgin? 
hurts me to vote against Will Ferrell, but Anchorman has little highs that are maybe higher than anything in 40-Year-Old Virgin, but 40-Year-Old Virgin is much more of a comic piece. Okay. So I had to go that way. We agree there as well. I might even agree with your reasoning. Our hitman play-in, you can go with In Bruges, Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson as hitmen, or Tom Cruise in Michael Mann's Collateral. Love Collateral. And there's still, you know, a little little three billboards stink on In Bruges now. Ha. That's not fair at all, Josh. I know, but, but it's true. I do appreciate Martin McDonough's work. And Imbruge is getting my pick because Collateral, guess what? Also on the top five list with AI of films I don't appreciate enough and need to revisit. And I'm saying conventional wisdom says I don't appreciate enough and conventional wisdom might be right. Our unconventional musical play-in, is it Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark or John Carney's Once? Well, Once is just going to trounce you think? Dancer in the Dark, but I'm voting for Von Trier. It's one of those films of his that I really, really love. I'm all over the place on him, and I think that one just works fantastically. Yeah, this is one of those where you think about it in terms of best or most significant versus favorite, and are you going with your head or your heart? If I'm going with my head, it's Dancer in the Dark. I'm going with my heart, though, Josh. I'm falling slowly for once. The documentary play, and this one's easy for me. Herzog's Grizzly Man versus Errol Morris's The Fog of War. I went Fog of War. I think this is somewhat similar to my case with Hot Fuzz and Edgar Wright. I don't think Grizzly Man, which I like, is necessarily one of his best, whereas I'd probably, of the Errol Morris documentaries I've seen, put Fog of War up there among his work. Okay, we split on this one, including on the reasoning. For me, The Fog of War is not one of my favorite Errol Morris docs. There's many others I love so much more, including Gates of Heaven and The Thin Blue Line, and Grizzly Man is up there. It's probably in the top five or six for me with Herzog. I love both filmmakers, so I am going to go with Grizzly Man there. Our horror play-in, our 10th play-in, Tomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In versus Bong Joon-ho's The Host. Easy one for me. Well, it's not so easy because I do like both of these films, but I can more vividly recall the fun I had at The Host. Really? Which, yeah, which made me give it my vote. Oh, Let the Right One In for me all the way. The new cult canon play-in, Donnie Darko versus... Mary Heron's American Psycho. Well, I think Donnie Darko is a messed up masterpiece, so I did have to vote for it. But I will say American Psycho is one I need to revisit uh, that I was not as high on when it came out. And most people, I think most people did like it mm-hmm. initially. I know it was and very I divisive. Liked it as well. But yeah. it has, I think it's grown in stature. I believe it has too. So um, I'm regretfully perhaps voting for Donnie Darko, but I got to go that way. Okay, well, I'm agreeing with you on that. The 2007 special play-in, this one was made just for us. I mean, literally, this play-in is only in this bracket because of us. Otherwise, these two films probably really don't belong in the conversation of the considered top 80 films of the entire decade. Yeah, that's true. We feel differently about these films. And in fact, I love your film as well, the one that's your choice in this play, and that would be Sarah Polly's Away From Her versus My Beloved Atonement from director Joe Wright. Well, thank you for including my consideration in the selection committee deliberations there. I do appreciate that. And yeah, I'm voting for Away From Her. It's just that it's one of those shattering movies for me. Yeah, I love it. It might have made my top 10 of that year. If it didn't, it was very close. Didn't have it obviously then as high as you, but Atonement, I may have um, I may have I may have ranked higher than there will be blood that year. Let's just move on <laughs> to the last 
the last play-in, the cult sci-fi play-in, the inaugural Golden Brick winner, Duncan Jones' Moon, versus a little low-budget mind-bender, the trippy primer from Shane Carruth. I'm still a Shane Carruth appreciator rather than I just haven't been able to chug that Kool-Aid yet. Moon is great. So I went with Moon. Okay, I am with you there as well. You can vote now at filmspotting.net slash madness. The play in polls close Monday, February 25th. The final bracket will be announced on the episode that will drop Friday, March first subscribers to the film spotting newsletter by the way you get a first look at the polls so you get to vote first i mean that's a real benefit voting first in film spotting madness at least i'm going to suggest it is again you can subscribe to the newsletter at filmspotting.net slash episodes while you listeners agonize over those choices adam and i are going to move on to name our favorite slow motion scenes since the matrix the film spotting top five is next stay with us i think about it If slow motion was a sound, that might be it. Josh Vangelis, the score for 1981's Best Picture winning Chariots of Fire. Not eligible for this week's top five. We are doing our favorite slow motion scenes since The Matrix. We put it out on Twitter. We were looking for a good top five in conjunction with The Matrix. And Daniel Castaneda Molina was the first to write in and suggest slow motion scenes. And we thought, why not just narrow it down a little bit? Instead of going all through cinema history, let's focus on the best uses of the technique since The Matrix came out 20 years ago. Now, I know this probably posed a little bit of a challenge for you. I'm sure you found a way around it. But how do you give proper love to your beloved Wes Anderson when the Royal Tenenbaums can't be used in here, it's in the Pantheon, when Rushmore can't be used because it's a 90s film? What are you going to do? We'll get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have an answer to that question, as you might expect. I also, I kind of doubled down on this narrowing we did. So I thought, okay, we've got a time frame here we're concentrating on. Uh, And then I thought, well, what is it about The Matrix? How can I tie this even more specifically to The Matrix, too? Uh, And so I asked myself, you know, what what is it about the slow-mo scenes in The Matrix that are unique? And I think it's that they change the rules of physics to show that the rules of the movie's narrative also have changed, okay? So it's not just a visual trick to to do something right then and there, but it's a 
thematic transformation that is taking place as well. So that's a lot of weight to put on a slow motion scene. Yeah. And I wondered within this narrow time frame, and maybe in the wake of The Matrix, being influenced by The Matrix, are there other movies, other sequences that do something similar? So my well, picks. Can I just say now I feel really bad because I just had what does it add? And what? I feel like you, you I basically think... said that, but just in more words a, and more eloquently. We're, 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 yeah, but that's essentially we're on the same path here, I think. All right. Number five, then I went with Melancholia, the opening sequence, Lars von Trier, his deep think depression parable. It features Kirsten Dunst as an advertising art director and a bride to be. She's sort of at the end of her personal world, just while the world is coming to an end. Essentially, the opening is really a series of they look like art installations. They're these carefully crafted tableaus, slow motion sequences that are art directed within an inch of their lives. Um, and they're also set to music from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. This is super slow-mo. It's almost as if you're not sure the images are moving until they are on the screen for a while and you notice little details. The most arresting image for me is probably the one of Dunst walking through a forest in her wedding dress and the roots of the trees around her are wrapped, trying to grab at her feet, holding her back. Obviously another metaphor there for her depression, I think. We also see in this sequence a horse falling down in slow motion. There's an insert of a Bruegel the Elder painting we get, birds falling from the sky, and then the giant planet Melancholia drifting on course to obliterate the earth. So a lot going on here. But essentially, and like The Matrix, time and space, we understand right at the beginning, isn't going to mean the same thing in this film. We have to recalibrate our understanding of physics. We're going to have to second guess reality as a result. And so we're wondering from the first moments, is this a dream? Is this a vision? The, the first thing we see is done close up of her face. So we're connecting it with her. Is this just poetic metaphor or some sort of alternate reality? The slow motion among those other techniques suggests that anything is possible, but the normal. We're not mm. going to get the normal. Yeah, that's a wonderful pick. And regardless of how you feel about Von Trier as a filmmaker or as whatever weird hybrid of human and walking performance art he is as a person, his films, every one of them I have recommended or suggested it's worth wrestling with in some way. And Melancholia certainly fits the bill. One thing I did consider, Josh, is if I was teaching a class on film, maybe just like a film 101 intro film analysis, or maybe specifically an editing class. If you went back to 99 and we're putting that syllabus together, you would obviously show clips from 2001. You'd show clips from Raging Bull. You'd probably show Peck and Paw and The Wild Bunch. You'd fit some De Palma in there. And I was thinking about, okay, now I might show those too. Those should probably be on the syllabus. But if we're going to give it this time restriction, what are the comparable choices for the past 20 years? And thinking about it in those terms did help me focus a little bit in on a few choices because they felt that momentous. They had that kind of epic quality to them. But I also wanted some balance. So it helped me make a few other choices. I wanted to go with movies that maybe didn't have that same sweep that actually showed that slow-mo doesn't have to always be employed ostentatiously. And like my number five, that may not fit into anyone's pantheon of great films, but does have an absolutely wonderful use of slow-mo. And I'm going with I, Tanya, 
the triple axle scene. This one comes fairly early in the movie. We have heard that this is a move that Tanya Harding can do. There's been some buildup to it. She's going to try to pull it off in performance. No American figure skater has ever successfully pulled off the triple axle before. And she does it. And director Craig Gillespie could have made it slow-mo, Josh, the very first time we see it. I think a lot of filmmakers might have done it. It's exactly the kind of moment in any kind of movie, but especially a sports movie where we're watching an athletic feat, where we would expect that moment of grandeur to be captured in a way that heightens it. And as she goes up into the air, we watch her spin and come down and land it and everyone cheers. But he actually shows it to us in real time and then returns to it immediately after and we see it in slow motion. We get to watch it again. And obviously the repetition of it, seeing the same move again, does heighten it in a way and showcase that grandeur. But I really think Gillespie was onto something in that regardless of whatever trickery may have been employed to make that scene happen and look like it's happening in an unbroken take with Margot Robbie skating as Tanya Harding, we as viewers have to see it in real time to believe that Tanya Harding just nailed it. It's what defines her. It's what makes her special as a skater. And I think without us seeing her nail it, just as the audience did, then it might lose a little bit of its mystique. We also see the achievement that it is. We see exactly what the move the triple axel is. I don't really know. You don't really know. Most people who don't follow figure skating aren't going to know what the move is. And by seeing it in that super slow motion, seeing every rotation, we appreciate the artistry of it even more. But I also think there's an important element to the repetition and the slow motion in that right after she does it the first time, we see her moment of joy, but then we get the coach's reaction, the boyfriend's reaction, and her mother's reaction. It's as if she's doing it almost to please them. It's really about how they feel about the move she just pulled off. And by returning to it, I think Gillespie actually returns the moment to her, to the skater who actually pulled off the feat. Oh my God, I mean, it was totally the most awesomest thing. Because leading up to it, you're like, I can't do it. I can't, I can't. And then, bam, I can't. And all those people who said I couldn't make it, well, you. I did. I proved everyone wrong. We get to experience her in her moment of triumph. I know she went on to other acclaim, but you could argue the single greatest moment in her professional career if you consider the elation of the achievement and the disappointing way her career ultimately finished. Well, the primary directive of Itanya is to provide this new lens for Tanya Hardy, right? right? And, and so what better way to do that than refocus onto the talent she had, the achievements that got lost in all the tabloid stuff. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great use of slow motion to really crystallize the focus of that lens. And a key part of her character, as we see in the movie, is to gloat a little bit. She's always trying to prove her worth. Yeah. And she gets in this moment, we get a literal <laughs> F you in the dialogue in her voiceover right after we get the metaphorical one in terms of just doing it on the ice. So the triple axel from Itanya is 
my number five. What do you have at number four? This is where I'm going to get to my West pick. All right. You're right. I was limited here as well. I probably would have gone for the Rushmore scene. I don't know. I was torn between coming out of the elevator after the B prank. And yeah. Max just sticking his gum on the wall. Um, or also in Rushmore, the slow motion encore onto the stage where he turns back and looks at the kid who punched him <laughs> as he's getting applause from the audience. All right. So that's probably where I would have gone. But within my limitations, I still have one that I really like from maybe my least favorite film of his, The Darjeeling Limited, but still one that I enjoy. And it comes from the end of The Darjeeling Limited, where these three bickering brothers who have been at the center of the film, played by Adrian Brody, Jason Schwartzman, and Owen Wilson, they've completed their spiritual slash emotional journey across India by train, by coming to terms with their father's death, their mother's relative indifference, and their own interpersonal intricacies. So Anderson symbolizes this with probably the most obvious metaphor you can imagine. This slow motion shot of them running to catch yet another train, this time throwing their high-end baggage aside as they leap aboard. And yes, it's their father's baggage, so it's even more literal than that. (laughs) So what is he saying there, Josh? What could he possibly be saying there? Well, I think the rules of the game that are being changed to put it in the context of The Matrix are maybe not so much physical or of physics, but emotional. You know, it's the fact that the rules of life are going to be different now for these brothers going forward. And that's clear from this moment. Also, I just love it for the physicality of Adrian Brody here. I mean, he's the perfect sensibility for Wes Anderson films. He has that comic melancholy to him, I think, underneath. But I have to think he was really cast for the way he was going to look in this scene with those gangly limbs just flailing about everywhere. Like he's like a goofy gazelle or something. And it's just a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. I do like that moment, even though I'm with you that the Darjeeling limited is not one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. I love that you found a way to get him on, even if it meant slumming with your pick ultimately in terms of the film itself, you just had to do it. It's about the scenes, Adam. It's I know. about the slow it motion is about scenes. The scenes. Yeah. And Wes Anderson deserves to be on a list of slow motion scenes, regardless of what restrictions we arbitrarily place on it. I've got another ending for you. My number four. I said I wanted some balance, at least one pick that wasn't an extravagant display of filmmaking. I think this one qualifies. It's Therese and Carol locking eyes at the end of the movie Carol, the 2015 Todd Haynes film that is set in 1952, Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett. They meet and connect as friends and eventually lovers, threatening Carol's marriage and her status. I could certainly provide more context, but I am talking about the final scene of the movie. So I'm going to be just a little bit sensitive to people who haven't seen it yet. This is Mara as Therese. She knows that Kate Blanchett's Carol will be at a restaurant dining with her friends. At first, she declines, and then she shows up. We get Therese's POV scanning the restaurant at normal speed. The camera stops finally on Carol, and when we cut back to Therese, it's slowed down, the camera tracking toward her for 20 seconds, just pushing in on Therese slowly, going from a medium long shot to a medium close-up. And in that 20 seconds, we get to study every thought and emotion that Rooney Mara's character is experiencing. And I think it's so perfect because it's not a case where time is stopping when these two lovers see each other, but it is this weird kind of limbo. Whatever happens next is going to alter the course of her life forever. And there's a lot of suspense there for her and for us as viewers. At this point, too, she could still turn back because Carol hasn't actually seen her yet. But she moves towards Carol, still in slow motion, people between them, which echoes their meeting earlier in the department store, until 
she finally reaches an unobstructed space and she pauses and Carol sees her. And we get this great Kate Blanchett move where her head is actually already facing Therese. She's just tilted to the side in the direction of her company. She's looking their way, but that allows her to stay perfectly still and just move her eyes. She just changes her gaze onto Therese. Basically, of course, the Carter Burwell score is doing a lot of great work in this scene as well. My favorite part, though, is then this cross cut between them, the camera pulling back away from Therese slowly, cutting on the motion as the camera moves toward Carol. And I did find a write up of this scene by a writer named Jennifer Barker. I'll just quote part of it. She's actually quoting here a writer named Patricia Wright, who says this of the ending's ambiguity. The lovers remain in their exclusive, eternally present tense, while the viewer is given both a tantalizing taste of the past and a glimpse of a queer future, which promises further cycles of desire and loss. So slow motion here allows the time to study the faces of these amazing actresses and draw our own conclusions about what they're thinking and where this might go. But it's also despite being so subtle, it heightens this sense of the past, the present, and the future all colliding in this one moment, all because Haynes just slows it down a little bit at the end of Carol. Well, it's so fitting, too, that that technique allows us to focus on little gestures, little glances, mm-hmm. these subtle things you're talking about. Because I think about, when I think about Carol, I always think about those bookended, the bookended scenes of them having tea, right? And and how like a, a squeeze of the shoulder mm-hmm. just expresses so much. Yeah. So yeah, the slow motion is crucial in, in capturing that same sort of sensibility. So my number three comes from Watchmen. It's Zack Snyder's adaptation of the 1986 graphic novel by author Alan Moore and illustrator Dave Gibbons. It's set in an alternate 1980s America where superheroes have been outlawed. Very divisive film. I know some people just hate this thing. I'm a fan. I, I was hmm. when it first came out. I've seen it since, and I, I do really, really like it. I'll admit maybe it's a bit too faithful of a recreation of the graphic novel. It's just kind of like a, a moving version, some people have said, and I can see that. But it does crucially take some cinematic license right at the beginning with its slow-motion opening credit sequence. It's this series of elegantly art-directed and costume-designed slow motion vignettes that transition um, all the way across eras. So it starts with images of superheroes in their glory days around World War II, where they're heroes, to trace their fall from grace, which kind of comes to fruition in the 1960s. So at that point, we suddenly get this image of a dead superhero. We see another superhero's retirement and then one being dragged away to a mental health facility. You'll notice as this sequence goes on that the sepia that at first signifies nostalgia, you know, this World War II sort of hominess, it starts to curdle when the images start to change. The slow motion that usually glorifies a subject and is doing that at the beginning, it sort of begins to feel accusatory when the tone changes. Mm -hmm. And then Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changing is, you know, played all along this and it really brings these dark, ironic undercurrents out. So essentially, this is um, this is slow-mo to demythologize. That's how this pick changes the rules. And I think that's what Watchmen is all about. Uh, it's, it's one of the only anti-superhero movies we've had still, despite all of these dark ones, and I'd include Snyder's, you know, unfortunate DC entries there. Those are dark for no real points, but Watchmen really wanted to be Mm anti-superhero. And I think this opening slow motion sequence sets the tone for that. Yeah, I wish I had some passion for Watchmen one way or the other. I just didn't really like it, but I did love the opening sequence and I considered it for this list. My number three slow-mo scene is Holdo's Sacrifice 
from last year's The Last Jedi. And this was a hard one because I had another Last Jedi scene in mind. The way slow motion is used between Kylo Ren and Rey in the throne room sequence, but I am going with the light speed ramming moment here where Laura Dern's character sacrifices herself so that the resistance can survive. We talked about it during our review. There was a fair amount of conversation around this scene because of its use of silence. I don't know if this was overblown or not, but there was at least one sign we saw on Twitter where a theater posted Yes, the sound's going to cut out at some point in this movie. Don't worry about it. Everything's working. It was taking audiences that much off guard. She's just ramming the ship into Snoke's fleet, the command ship, but then the entire fleet surrounding it at light speed, and we get the boom of the thrust forward, then total quiet as it hits that command ship, and it splits it in half, lighting up the dark of space, which then ignites the other ship, and we get all this matter and debris spraying in extreme slow motion into space. Ryan Johnson, the film's director, was on the Slash Filmcast, our friend Dave Chen's show, and talked about the sequence, how he had the idea fairly early on, and the whole thing was storyboarded out, and he wanted to use the silence and the slow motion early on to communicate the bigness of this, as he says, and the idea that it was all happening in a nanosecond. The notion that this event is out of time in a weird way. So again, slow motion being used to to give the viewer that sense of everything being taken out of time, but also heightening the sheer scale of the collision. And I think in a way, heightening figuratively the scale of the sacrifice that Holdo's character is making. I think the whole thing is just breathtaking. And I mean that sort of literally because when it happens and even rewatching it, you actually sort of inhale the moment the ship takes off and you don't breathe again until that release of the audio boom that signals the final explosion and this is all over. I just think it's great filmmaking in that scene. A great choice by Ryan Johnson. Yeah, he's got a couple of wow moments in that movie and that sequence is definitely one of them. I, I would argue if we ever do our top five uses of silence, I don't think we've done that. We actually have. You've done quiet top scenes, five, Well, right? Top wasn't five quiet scenes. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't there. I think Michael was on that show, but I don't know if you focus explicitly on actual silence. Yeah, we did. Alright, well, then I won't get to use this when I <laughs> Don't do worry, show 957 was will this, do it. Was this on it? Do you remember? No, but certainly movies I was considering for this list, there was some crossover because a lot of slow motion scenes obviously just employ music yeah. and don't employ the dialogue. That's true. Yeah. All right. So for my number two, I'm going to pick a film that has been mentioned on a previous top five list rather recently. Actually, Adam, you put it on our top five uses of color lists. It's Tarsum Singh's The Fall, his 2008 fantasy film. And it's something ironic, I think, that uh, the part I'm picking, the opening scene here, is actually in black and white. So you called this film out for its great use of color. The sequence I want to point to is in black and white. The story itself involves a stuntman in 1920s Hollywood who's hospitalized after an accident. And I think, I didn't rewatch the whole film for this, but I think this opening is an oblique recreation of the aftermath of that accident. We don't actually see the stuntman played by Lee Pace at all in this sequence. So I hope... I'm remembering that correctly. Nevertheless, what we do see is um, the slow motion images of this frantic attempt from the train tracks on a bridge over a river to rescue this horse that's in the water. So we're jumping back and forth from up on the tracks to the water to people watching all in slow motion, really idiosyncratic camera angles. Music here is effective as well. It's from Beethoven Symphony Number no. 7. And all of it comes together so that Singh is is emphasizing the fantastic of what is essentially an everyday 
occurrence, but it has this fairy tale feel to it. So here's another shifting of the rules, which makes sense because we soon learn that the bulk of this movie is going to be a fantastic yarn that Pace's stuntman spins in the hospital for a young girl who's also a patient there. If nothing else, this sequence, though, I think it it shows that smoke from a steam engine is meant to bellow in slow motion and in black and white. There's this one shot that captures the shadow of the smoke on the river, this inky blackness that's just spreading out on the brown water. And it's gorgeous stuff from another film that uses slow motion to sort of bend reality in its own way. I love that the fall is getting a little bit more attention here on the show. And I've got some more black and white for you, Josh, with my number two. First, a little bit of background on how I arrived at this pick. I initially had a different movie slotted in here. It was the opening credit sequence to Zombieland, Ruben Fleischer. Love that opening for whom the bell tolls, Metallica, the montage of the zombies in super slow-mo chasing everybody around. And as I started taking my notes, I thought, boy, this... This seems familiar. I feel like I've done this before. Sure enough, search back through the archives and find that on episode 423, I think, back in 2012, top five credit sequences, I had Zombieland at number five. Now, that was 300 shows ago. It was like six years ago. I could certainly reference it again, but I thought, you know what? Now that gives me an excuse to go to another great opening credit sequence that I've got my honorable mentions right now. What about the opening of Watchmen? And won't that be fun since I don't like that movie? That'll surprise everyone. And then I found out it was going to make your list. I said, okay, well, I could go to option three. Didn't expect any crossover. Turns out there is some crossover. I'm going to see your carefully crafted tableaus of Melancholia and Lars von Trier and raise you Antichrist. Oh, boy. I just didn't want to think about Antichrist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's distinct from the others I was just talking about as far as opening sequences in slow-mo because those are pure montages it's all similar moments and actions being cut together and they are both actual credit sequences this isn't this is the beginning of the film it's over five minutes long in slow motion black and white cross-cutting between a couple's lovemaking the shower laundry room bedroom and their young son getting out of his crib going to an open window dropping his bear and then plummeting to his death So I understand why you did not want to think about this sequence. Anthony Dodd Mantle, the director of photography, again, all black and white, all slow-mo, all set to an aria by Handel. And I think what we see here is slow motion being used to do what slow motion does, what Ryan Johnson said, communicating the bigness of the scene. Of course, losing a child. What would be more monumental than that? The whole film is going to be about the aftermath and the effect that that has on the couple. It also, in being so drawn out, so slow, in keeping with Lars von Trier and his milieu, we already touched on this, it draws out the agony of it. But I do think, more specifically, it elevates the sense of inevitability and dread. I'm going with that instead of saying it's just about Lars von Trier trying to punish his characters and punish us. Before we see the boy, we see his room window blow open and the snow coming in and we see army men that signals that it might be a child's room and then a bear attached to a balloon floating and that rising cut with Gainsbourg's body floating down to the bed and we watch the kid getting down going to the window getting up on that chair and desk and seeing it all in again that extreme slow motion you just recognize that it's not just an inciting incident it's not just what is going to 
be the act that fuels everything that follows. It's not just a gut punch, which I think it could have been. If it played out in real time, it could have surprised us. It could have actually been kind of a gotcha moment where just as this couple is caught unaware and they're not paying proper attention to their child, we as viewers are surprised by it as well. Instead, it becomes this tragic intersection of beauty and horror and of passion and curiosity. And if that doesn't say Lars von Trier, then I don't know what does. I don't need necessarily to watch Antichrist again. I'm not in a hurry to do it. I'm probably not in a hurry to rewatch any Lars von Trier film. And I don't really mean that as a negative at all, but I think that opening of Antichrist is stunning. You should have stuck with Zombieland. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I've already shown I'm not a Von Trier hater. Melancholy is on this list. When we were talking about film Spotty Madness, I voted for Dancer in the Dark, but this one, oof. You didn't like Antichrist? This one, oh. And this Chaos sequ- Rain, the Josh. sequence in particular, it's the bear. I mean, <laughs> the bear just makes... It pushes it past excruciating to just absurd. And then I think when the bear hits the sidewalk, it crosses over to hacky. It's just too much. Absurd, I think, is a good way to look at Von Trier and his film. So that brings us to our number ones. Let's see if we agree on these choices. Okay. So my number one was inevitable once I had narrowed down my criteria for this list. And it's Inception, the cafeteria explosion. You know, When I think of Inception now, I do consider it to be a trailblazer on its own terms, especially in terms of special effects. But watching The Matrix again made me realize how much Christopher Nolan's 2010 Mindbender really owes to the Wachowskis. Uh, Of course, the most obvious is the use of slow motion, especially this scene. This is where Ellen Page's architect is being recruited at a cafe by Leonardo DiCaprio's dream thief. He reveals to her that they're actually in this shared dream together. So this intrusion of reality destabilizes things, and suddenly objects around them explode. We get this initial fast motion burst, and then suddenly they freeze Matrix style and slow down. So like a fruit stand goes through this process, and the windows around them, and eventually the whole cafe that they're sitting in. So here we are in a dream world where we're being shown that the rules have absolutely changed. And I think Inception is also like The Matrix. This is why I consider it to be so brilliant in the way its ideas of reality and identity are so intricately woven into its very form. So that's why I have it at number one. It just seems to capture exactly what The Matrix did so well. And it's a reason why I think Inception will stand the Mm -hmm. test of time by using some of the techniques that The Matrix pioneered. So it's sort of perfect in that way. There are a lot of other ways these are similar films. In fact, while I was researching some of this, I came across fan theories out there about Inception being a prequel to The Matrix. Hmm. I didn't go too far down that rabbit hole, but it's out there. It does make sense on the surface, but I love Inception, and this sequence was one of those uh, that I think about first when I think about the film. Great choice. I only feel bad now because for a while I had Inception as my number one. Yeah, Didn't want to have the crossover, but it turns out we would have gone with different scenes because while I was aware of that scene, for me, when I think of Inception, I immediately think of the van. The van. The van going off the bridge. I watched that one too. The way that all intersects with all those other timelines that are happening, those dream worlds. The the cross-cutting. Yeah, the way that that van sort of represents the the sands of the hourglass Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that effect on what's happening in those other worlds. And you talked about the form and how important it is and how he uses it, Nolan, here. 
in doing my research, I came across a quote from an interview where I think he said he doesn't really ever use slow motion and had never really before. And as I read that, I thought, well, I can't think of an example yeah. off the top of my head in other films. He had always kind of rejected it and avoided it. And I'm putting this word in his mouth here, but as kind of an aesthetic trick, it, mm-hmm. it was something if it was just purely for aesthetic reasons, he wasn't going to sure. do it. And he found a reason in Inception in the van sequence and the way time is rendered across these different layers. And in the scene you gave as well, the way time is layered, the way different rules apply in these different dimensions, as you talked about. So we could have gone that route. Instead, it'll just have to be an honorable mention for me, because instead I'm going for my number one. Nicholas Winding Refn, the elevator beat down from Drive. And this is one that did not make my list, but I thought about for quiet scenes because there is no dialogue. Mm, there is yeah, just music true. here in this sequence. Ryan Gosling, Carrie Mulligan, and another guy who in the elevator is giving Gosling the side eye. And then we get Gosling looking at him and noticing the gun in his jacket. He knows he's a hitman. He's been sent for him, possibly for her as well. As soon as the elevator closes and they get in with this guy, that's when the slow motion starts. It's a two-minute sequence of slow-mo. Gosling's character, the driver, protecting her, reaching back with his hand to slide her over, then turns to face her. And we get this really dramatic lighting change that cuts it to a two-shot as if they're the only two people, maybe not just in the elevator, Josh, despite that third guy being there. They might be the only two people in the entire world here at this point in the elevator and then this elongated kiss and the look that follows it and it's all incredibly romantic i really feel that watching the scene originally in the theater and watching the scene again for this list and there's so much going on in the moment because we know that his feelings for her the feelings he's expressing in this action and that kiss are real and he's expressing them in a way that i believe he's yet to really be able to do But as authentic as it might be, the act itself is kind of an act. He's actually buying time. It's giving him the element of surprise so he knows that he can be the one to attack first. And not only is it his first chance to show his feelings, but it might be his last, Josh. Where does a relationship go after the woman you love witnesses you stomp a man's head in in an elevator? Even if he was going to kill you, where does a relationship go after that kind of brutality? The sound design here is so important to the scene. Again, as is probably the case with all of our slow motion picks, the musical choice, the way the natural sound, the diegetic sound all kind of cuts away and then comes back. Again, it's a sequence that feels out of time. It's that idea, as I said, of the first and last real romantic encounter they may ever have. And it's this limbo between their previous state of existing and the state they're about to enter together. It's this fantasy. As soon as that light goes dark on them together, it's this fantasy of what their relationship could be. And that's all broken as soon as the music fades, the driver turns, and we're back to reality. We're back to real time, or at least closer to real time. I think the camera is still moving a little bit in slow motion when we come out of it and we get the fight. I know some people aren't fans of this film and the brutality of it. And look, I don't go into any film hoping to watch someone get their head stomped in, but I give Winding Refn and this film a lot of credit. I think it's actually about reckoning with your choices and the consequences of those choices. And 
I love that scene. Yeah, I'm a fan of the film, too. I can't say I entirely feel good about it. I'm very conflicted about why I'm such a fan of the film, but this scene encapsulates it. it it's it's irresistible yeah. in a lot of ways, despite the awfulness that you're seeing. And you're right. It's like the beatdown is meat cute, and it, it just sort of works. Yeah, it does. Those are our top five slow motion scenes since The Matrix in 1999. Josh, I'm guessing... You have a few honorable mentions? I'm going to mention a few that listeners suggested because we did get great Great responses and feedback. This is on Twitter. I heard from Ben Bean who suggested Ben Stiller getting shot up platoon style in Tropic Thunder. Jeff Hodges pointed out the time in a bottle sequence from X-Men Days of Future Past. And then a lot of people, I think at this point we hadn't narrowed it down to since The Matrix. So there were a lot of suggestions for In the Mood for Love, obviously not eligible. But how about Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, Cody Paulson, on Twitter reminded me of that fight sequence in the rain, which does make exquisite use of slow motion. Now, why are you saying In the Mood for Love is ineligible? Oh, no, it's not the date. It's because it's in the Pantheon. Yeah. That's it's why. Not. It's not. It's not in the Pantheon? No, it just probably should be. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. Did you just check? No, I didn't check. I don't need to. Share your honorable mentions. I'm going to check. It should be. I don't believe it is. It is from the year 2000. So all of those great sequences of that couple passing each other, whether on the street or in a stairwell, so many of them in slow motion from In the Mood for Love probably should be in this top five. Both of our lists are invalid. Well, honorable mention. Come on. We'll say it's number six. That should cover us, Josh. How about Moonlight? Naomi Harris, the scene with the young Chiron and... Harris as the mother, that standoff between them in their house and the way she just looks at him with that face of pure rage and then unleashes on him. Again, no sound. We don't hear what she's yelling. We just see from his perspective the yelling in slow motion. I do really enjoy, I think it's Andrew Dominic who did Killing Them Softly. Yeah. Not a film I love, but I do think I recommended it. And that drive-by shooting sequence with, I think, Brad Pitt's character and... Probably Ray Liotta. That's a fun one. Michael Phillips had a great musical moment at our rap party that uses slow motion wonderfully. Zhukov's entrance in The Death of Stalin yes, when he throws he off his, <laughs> his coat and we see all of his medals in slow motion. And I suppose I should at least say that the Quaalude sequence from The Wolf of Wall Street is an honorable mention just because, Josh, I could have put it on my top five. Yeah. And we could have rehash that whole thing. But I decided not to do it. Yeah, we've been having too much fun. This is our first top five in a little while. It's too much fun. We don't need to go there, but I will list it as an honorable mention. Again, those are our top five slow motion scenes since The Matrix. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also the place where all the film spotting madness magic is happening. You can vote right now in our play-in round. And if you haven't already, check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, Tasha Robinson, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps are going to pair up the art world satire's Velvet Buzzsaw from director Dan Gilroy, available on Netflix right now, with Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood from 1959. Going way back. I've seen It's a lot of fun. I like it better than Velvet Buzzsaw. We'll see what the crew says. If you want some film spotting merch, you can order t-shirts and all other sorts of stuff at filmspotting.net slash shop. And if you want to visit Adam and I in the Matrix, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. To subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash 
episodes. Out in wide release, Happy Death Day to You, Isn't It Romantic? Alita Battle Angel, which is directed by Robert Rodriguez and in limited release opening here in Chicago, Everybody Knows from Asghar Farhadi, starring Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz. Next week on the show, we're not going to talk about any of those films. We are going to focus on our top five movies about suburbia with Jessica Harper of Suspiria fame. She also has a new podcast out called Winnetka about growing up here in the northern Chicago suburb. It should be a great chat with her. And as an actress who's been doing this for decades, I can't wait to hear which movies about that life really resonate with her. We'll also finally launch, and we say finally because it's been about 12 years in the making, our John Cassavetes marathon by looking at his second film, Faces. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. When you're done listening to this episode, how about giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach a few new listeners? Our music this week is from X Hex. It came from the forthcoming album, It's Real. More information is at xhexband.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I guess the other thing I would say is when they all get plugged into the Matrix, mm-hmm. how are they getting that's, into that? It has the, to be a singular world that they inhabit or else they would all be going to true. different places. That's true. Right? They're going to that 1999. Morpheus says, They're, like, you think it's be, 1999. They interact then. Right. Yeah. So it's like, but so, so it's not an individual other... construct. Ye't yeah, that's true. Everybody they meet they has could, to those they're other just drones could be they're programs. Just, like Morpheus says they're just people who are or Smith says they're all just people they're oblivious. One of them says they're just people who are going about their daily lives. They prefer chaos, to not know though like that's what part It'd be chaos if you had um because even within those programs, the pod people are making decisions. you know they're making free will decisions within the program right um, well, so they think they are they're well, not. no, I think like. Neo is when he chooses to um, it's that his free will decisions cross a line is the problem. Right. And that's when the men in black start pursuing him. So no, I w- they're only pursuing they're only pursuing him because he'll lead them to Morpheus. That's the only reason they're pursuing him. Right. But he's made decisions like it's it's not like a program. Well, this gets into the philosophy. It's not like determinism where it's like you're plugged in. No, you're right. That would that's but, that would be similar to like the paradise that humanity reject but i'm saying it's no different than us right here in this moment if we were living in the matrix we believe that we're autonomous and we have free will we just don't know that we're in a, we just don't know that we're inside a pod but i assume right, you're real within, and i'm real and but within the pod there's some the way i see him moving there's some degree of choice so then my argument would be like if you put all the pod people in the same world it would be more like the real world than this controlled but environment but because everyone's making individual choices to a degree and but if it's, it all but has that's to be that so is life. Controlled. That is life, right? Though. And it's not creating life. But it is the matrix. It's a it's version not, of life. it's not the matrices. It's the matrix. Wow. Well, they yeah. they they created that's a, a, be- no, a better title. They created a matrix for every human to inhabit. You wouldn't want to call it the matrices. No, you wouldn't. It's not as good. <laughs> okay. Um,
Okay, let's... Uh... Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.